everyone. This is the final message in our series, but before I jump into it, there was a there is a red minivan in our parking lot, a journey red minivan, and I want you to know that we have your keys. And uh, if that's your vehicle, uh, just drop your title by you know the office tomorrow morning. We can complete the sale of that vehicle. But uh, anyway, if that's you, uh, you, go to the welcome center and you can grab your keys uh, after the service. So don't ignore, don't make yourself known though. Be discreet. Uh, but this morning we're uh, in the last verse of Psalm 23, and uh, and it's there is a lot in this verse for us to consider. Uh, David says in Psalm 23:6, "Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live." I thought it'd be fitting to end this series talking about hope. That if we're going to lead like Jesus, if we're going to be like Jesus, uh, hope is as core to us as any other thing that we might talk about. And so what is that hope? And what does hope look like? And what's our basis for hope? And how can we experience hope and share hope and talk about it uh, with one another? Uh, I want to zero in. There's three kind of key ideas in this verse that I want us to think about. And the first idea or the first concept is goodness. Uh, Paul mentions, or I'm sorry, David mentions God's goodness. You might underline that word. God's goodness, if you think about it, is a basis for hope that should apply to everyone. Now, as I was reading this verse, uh, a lot of times I'll read a verse in multiple translations because there's a nuance and kind of a flavor of meaning to a lot of words. So when they translate them over to English, you know, what's the best word that captures what the original text was saying? But some translations, like the CSB that I typically use, it says, only goodness and love follow me all the days of my life. And I find that translation kind of curious, that, that only goodness would follow a person. There's other translations uh, that you might be more familiar with that are older that talk about that surely goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life. The word only seems to imply an expectation that only good things will happen to us in life. And is that David's expectation in this psalm, that only good things would happen to him in his life? You've probably met Christian people who as part of their faith they believe that only good things will happen to them. And they have that expectation. And, and you look at their life and maybe everything's going a certain way and, and it seems to be true. But then when a bad thing happens, their whole faith foundation kind of crumbles because not only good things happen, but now this bad thing has happened in my life. And, and what do I do with it? And, and there's a lot of people that have their whole faith wrecked when something bad happens to them. So is David's perspective that, is, is it that only goodness will follow him? Or is it something else? The word surely implies more of a supplication or a prayer or, you know, asking God for something to become true. And so, uh, you know, you can kind of wrestle with those words yourself. But, uh, but the word only does uh, assume an expectation. When I read the Psalms, the psalmist will often reflect on the seeming injustice of things like, hey, why do good things happen to evil people? Why are, why are good things happening to my enemies and, and the enemies of God? And, and why, as a believer, as a righteous person, are bad things happening to me? 
So this is a, an age-old issue that, that Christian people have wrestled with. I think the proper Christian perspective is that we live in a good world that's been created by a good, perfect, and holy God. Our world was once flawless and holy and perfect, but when sin entered into the world, the character of our world changed. And sadly, we do live in a world that is affected by the evil one. The Bible tells us that Satan was a liar and a murderer from the very beginning. His first imprint, his first initiatory act on creation was to lie and to cause murder. And more than that, the Bible says that Satan has come to steal, kill, and destroy. And so those, that influence of Satan is evident all over creation. And it's evident in the human race. And, and we know from scripture that humankind can be deceived by Satan's lies. People can conspire with Satan to accomplish his evil works and to carry out his will and agenda. And that's how the Bible begins in Genesis. Sin enters through Eve. Eve deceived her husband, caused him to sin, Adam, then their marriage, then their family. Next thing you know, Cain's killing Abel. There is a whole escalation of evil that came that originated with the evil one. When bad things happen, uh, I find no scriptural basis or reason to blame God. It seems to me when I read the Gospels, Jesus spent an awful lot of time clarifying this point. And I'm not talking about judgment or the ultimate, uh, you know, the, the wrath or the judgment of God when his iniquity, when the cup is full and, and his iniquity reaches its, his patience reaches its limits. I'm not talking about that. But Jesus spent an awful lot of time talking and clarifying the goodness of God. People in Jesus' day, like our day, wondered whether God was good. Was God punishing people in peculiar ways, like maybe causing the man in John 9 to be born blind, or maybe another person to have a disease or an impairment? You know, did a tower fall and were there victims of that tragedy because that was somehow the activity of God? Uh, did a bunch of people get slaughtered by Herod uh, because of uh, they got what was coming to them and, and God just used Herod as his instrument? People would come to Jesus and they would pose these different scenarios and questions and at the root of their question was, is God good? Is God the author of evil or the originator or is he using this in some way? And Jesus repeatedly clarified that the way we should think of God and understand him is that he's like a father. And so Jesus says, if a son asks his father for bread, will the father give him a stone? If a son asks his father for a fish, will the father give him a snake? Well, the devil might, or an evil person might, but God's not that kind of father. He has a character of goodness. Some imagine that God is a capricious God, that God governs the world like some demented adolescent playing SimCity or Sim Earth, when I was an adolescent, I had a computer PC, and, and Sim Earth and Sim City were the big games, you know, and you set up this paradise and all these buildings, and there would be all these little humans walking around and all this stuff, and, you know, you'd build this enormous city that was magnificent, and then you'd get bored, and you said, I think I'll send a firestorm and burn all these buildings down and watch all the little people run around, or a flood or a tornado or something like that. Some imagine that God is playing games with us and that he may not be 
good. Jesus taught that God in his goodness causes the sun to rise and the rains to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. There's a general goodness that touches everyone. That's my point. James 1.17 says, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like the shifting shadows. God's goodness is something that's core to his character and nature. It's something that's very trustworthy about who he is. In fact, in Romans chapter 2, you know, Paul, he talks about God's contending with sinful man. But in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Paul invites us to contemplate the kindness of God. He says, do you despise the the richness of God's kindness and restraint and his patience? Do you not recognize that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? God's strategy in human history, his strategy in dealing with sinful man is to lead with goodness and kindness and restraint and tolerance to create an allowance, right, for man to come to his senses and to come to a place of repentance. At the end of Romans, when Paul is prescribing how we as a Christian people ought to deal with evil people in evil situations, Paul again invites us not so much to consider the kindness of God, but to emulate the kindness of God. He says, you know, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Because in doing that, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Not the kind of sulfur that rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah, but a different kind of activity. He says, do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Those coals of sulfur, those embers that are being rained down on our enemies are embers of goodness. And they have a way of melting the enemies of God. And so Paul invites us to emulate the very uh, act of God in Christ. So what is hope? Uh, And what does it look like? What is our basis for hope? I think hope looks like goodness and kindness. I think a, a basis for hope And I would say that a basis for hope for for all people, whether you're a Christian or not, a basis for hope is that you were created by a good and perfect God, a a God who shows fatherly goodness and kindness to, yes, even his enemies. And as a people created in the image of a good God, we also, even though we've sinned and we've fallen and, and even when we're in rebellion to God, we still have this capacity to show goodness and we often do. You know, when the most extravagant acts of evil occur, you will see goodness in the moment, in the aftermath of a situation. You know, they always say, watch the helpers. You'll see how goodness uh, is is something that pervades uh, even human nature. By the way, a point of contrast between Christians and non-Christians is this. Uh, When good things happen to a non-Christian... They say things like, well, will you look at that? Lucky me. Uh, The universe is smiling down on me. They'll attribute it to something that they did or to to good fortune or luck or to some other element. Paul in Romans 1 talks about how uh, the non-Christian, the non-believer, though they know God 
and they know his nature and they know his power from creation. It's evident, even though all that's true, they don't glorify God or show gratitude to God. They don't attribute things back to God. I was in need. This thing happened. Oh, God answered your prayer. No, it just, no that's just, uh, it happened this way or this way or whatever. The Christian looks at life and says, thank you, God. The Christian acknowledges that God is the source of every good thing that comes, whatever form it comes in. So, for example, I, I thank God every day that I wake up. Do you? I thank God every day I have food to eat. Uh, probably too much, but it's there. It's good. I thank God I have a bed to sleep in. I thank God I have a wife. Not in that order, so don't judge me, all right? But I thank God for family. I thank God for friends, for people that I can love and that people that love me back. <clears throat> and I'm especially thankful for the church because if ever there was a place and a people where goodness was multiplied exponentially, it's among the church. You know, somebody that doesn't know Christ can be a good person in the general sense and do good things and be generous. But Christians particularly have an exponential goodness to them because they've been compelled by the love of God to show God's good nature. But I'm thankful for the church. I'm thankful that I have work to complete, goals to achieve. When I get up in the morning, like this morning, I went to my car and, uh, you know, I thank God for the little squirrels that are running around. I feed them. They're kind of entertaining. I thank God for the little rabbits that, that peek out. You know, the squirrels feed the rabbits. I, I put corn out, and the squirrels eat the end of the corn, and they drop the rest of it down, and the rabbits eat that. And then the, the ducks come in later in the evening, and they eat. Like, it's all gone, but, like, they've all fed each other. It's an amazing thing to watch. But anyway, I enjoy animals and creation, the cardinals, the blue jays, worn it out, you know, uh, all these different things. Uh, if I'm carving a log, and, you know, every log has grain and it has a certain character, there's knots and stuff, but when the ugly knots fall in my favor and they appear on a piece that I'm cutting off anyway, or the grain complements what I'm trying to do, even those little mundane things like that, I thank God. I acknowledge that God is the source of every good thing. Thank you, Lord, is something that I say in my spirit continually. Now, even though we live in a world where there's evil, the evil doesn't prevail. The goodness of God prevails, even in an evil world. The goodness of God, if you look for it, is on display everywhere, in the most mundane things, in the most complex things. If you pay attention, you'll realize that at times the goodness of God chases and pursues you. I've even seen the goodness of God chase and pursue a non-believer. And why is that? Because that goodness is there to get our attention. And that goodness is there to lead us to a place of responsiveness and repentance. Uh, God is showing his general goodness uh, to all people in order to lead us to the source of that goodness, which is himself. You know, the reason that God created you is to love you and to be loved by you. The reason he sends the sun and rain, the reason he gives you bread, not stones, and fish and not snakes, is because he's a good God. Every element of the periodic table, remember that thing from high school, the 
periodic table, very intimidating, all these different elements, and they all combine and do different beautiful things. Every ray of sunlight, every drop of rain, every bite of food, uh, the medicine, the technologies that we enjoy, do not be deceived. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. I find myself teaching a lot of people that experience good things and remark, lucky me, I find myself saying, God gave you that. God blessed you with that. God's the source of that good thing. That's a way that we can talk about uh, our hope in in God's goodness with with folks. There's a story uh, in the Gospels where Jesus heals ten lepers. And nine of them thought, lucky us, you know, and they went about and they did whatever, you know, they got healed. They probably went about their, their family and their life and their jobs or, or whatever they needed to do. But there was only one that thought to come back and to thank Jesus. And I want to be like that guy. I don't want to be like the other guys. I want to be the one who, like David, acknowledges how God's goodness pursues and follows and chases us. And I want to see it and I want to acknowledge it. And I want to give thanks to God for his goodness. When a person is in despair, you can always point to the general goodness of God as a source of encouragement, no matter who that person is. Good things will come about in the general order of God's creation. He designed creation. He designed human beings to be that way. Uh, There's a, a young man that we have been trying to help that uh, is homeless and, and he's got severe incapacities and he's not really helpable in a lot of ways. And sometimes he's here and sometimes he's up the street, sometimes he's across town, he's all, sometimes he's in Chatham, sometimes he's breaking into people's homes. I mean, he's all over the place. But despite all of that stuff, he doesn't miss a meal. You know, he, there's a lot of goodness that people show. Uh, and so even the person in the most despairing of circumstances can often point and acknowledge the goodness of God. But it isn't just God's goodness that's in view in Psalm 23.6. There's another level here of things to talk about. David mentions, surely goodness and faithful love will follow me all the days of my life. So make a note of this. God's general goodness is a basis for hope. But God's covenant love is an even greater basis for hope. God's covenanting, faithful love. And it's so important that we talk about this and differentiate this and break this down. Goodness and faithful love are two different things. Uh, One might be an extension of the other, but they're two different ideas. So there's a general sense that we've been talking about in which God's goodness touches every single human being. We are touched by far more goodness than evil. Now, Fox News and CNN and, and MSNBC and all the, the cable shows, you know, they kind of give us a demented view. They, they, they cause us to fixate on the evil. And you'd think that there's this extraordinary imbalance of evil that exists in the world. There is evil. But there's an overwhelming amount of goodness. There's far more goodness than evil. And if you look for it, it's everywhere. Goodness prevails because Goodness is greater than darkness and evil. Without goodness, society wouldn't function. Most anything wouldn't function. But that's not the whole picture. 
David alludes to God's faithful love. In the Old Testament, there's a Hebrew word that's pronounced hesed. And it's one word, and it's a word for love, but sometimes it's translated mercy. Sometimes it's translated a, a lot of different ways. And it's because there's, what's the equivalent English word that you can use to translate hesed from Hebrew to English? Love is not adequate because love is kind of a throwaway word. So the translators add this idea of faithful love, of covenant love. We have the same problem in the New Testament, which was written in Greek. The Greeks had not just one word for love, they had three or four words for love. So when you see the word love in the New Testament, what kind of love is being talked about? So in the New Testament, agape love is equivalent to hesed love in the Old Testament. Whenever the Old Testament writers are talking about God's love, they, they use the word hesed. Whenever Jesus or the, the New Testament writers are talking about God's love, they use agape. And it's because it's not just a generic throwaway kind of love. God's love is a focused kind of love. His hesed, his agape, it's a special kind of love. It's a selective love. God's hesed, his agape love, is like a faithful love, like what a married couple would have for one another. It's a covenanting love. When God made a covenant with Adam and Eve, though they sinned, God made a covenant that he was going to bless them through an offspring that they would have. God made a covenant with Noah and his family. Though the world was destroyed, his special love saw Noah and his family aid and all through the flood into kind of a, a rebirth, a renewal of creation. When God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12, he said, I'm going to favor you and I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless those who bless you and I'm going to make, I'm going to bless every nation on earth through your child, through your offspring, which would be Christ. And God renewed that promise with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He renewed it with Moses. He renewed it with the nation of Israel, generation after generation. Even King David, God made a covenant with him to establish his throne forever. A descendant is going to come from your throne who's going to establish a kingdom that will never pass. That was God's covenant love that he made with David. And he also said that a shoot of Jesse, a descendant, will reign on that throne, and that would become Jesus. So it's hesed, agape, love. God promising his faithfulness and love to be with his people for all generations, through thick and thin. When they were striving for holiness, when they were spiraling in sin, what you see in the Old Testament is that God has a hesed, faithful, agape love Paul in the New Testament, he even marvels at God's love. He says, you know, if we're faithless, like he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. It's like a marriage. One's unfaithful, but the other stays faithful because that one can't deny themselves. God is like that faithful partner. No matter what's going on, he's remaining faithful because he's not going to be untrue to who he is. He's not a liar and a schemer and a killer and a destroyer. Like the evil one, God is good and he's also hesed, agape, he's love, he's a covenanting, faithful, loving God. I want you to understand that like anyone else in the world, we can possess a kind of generic hope in the prevailing goodness of God. But there's something even better. We can possess a specific kind of hope in the relentless, covenanting love of God. 
Because God opens that covenant up to us as well by faith. When you trust Christ, when you say yes to God's overtures of goodness and he shows you this covenant and you say yes and you enter into a relationship with the living God through faith in Christ, you, receive, you are the recipient of God's specific, special, selective kind of love. Romans 8, Paul, again, marvels at the agape love of God. He says, what are we to say about all these things? If God is for us, imagine that, not just God's good to us, but if God is for us, man, who's against us? If God didn't even spare his own son but gave him up for us all, How much more will he not also give us everything? Who can bring accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who can condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more was raised. He's at the right hand of God interceding for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword by the way? Paul wasn't exempt from those things, affliction, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Jesus wasn't exempt from those things. But those things never can separate us from the faithful covenanting commitment of God to love us through those things and beyond those things. Paul concludes, he says, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, angels or rulers, Present things or things to come, powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love, hesed, agape of God that's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I have a newsflash for you. Romans 8 isn't talking about the general grace of God on every single person. Romans 8 is talking about the special, specific kind of love the hesed agape love of God that's on those particularly who are in Christ, on those particularly who are in a covenant relationship with God through Christ. How do you get into Christ? By faith, by repentance, confession, uh, acknowledging God as the Lord of your life. That goodness ought to be leading you into a covenanting posture before a faithful God where you're saying yes to that relationship, not everybody does. There are Roman eight blessings that people are denying themselves by not accepting the covenanting agape hesed gesture of God. Romans eight twenty eight through 30. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Because those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, that they would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, those he predestined, he called, those he called, he justified, those he justified, he also glorified. Let me summarize it. God is the author and originator of this covenant of salvation. He's the author of it, and he's also the perfecter of it. That if you get into this relationship with him, he sees the relationship through to his intended ultimate outcome. All things will work to the ultimate good of those who love God. And not just a general goodness, but a hesed kind of love. A general basis for hope, the goodness of God. A very particular, specific basis for hope, if you're willing to receive it, is God's faithful covenanting love. If 
I understand that God loves me so much that he didn't spare his only son, then how much more will God give us who love him? That's hope on a whole other level, do you agree? And it's yours. All you have to do is ask God to be the Lord and Savior of your life. Now, David mentions something that I think is even more specific and powerful. Goodness, faithful love are, are pursuing. God's pursued us throughout all history in Christ. But then he says this. Surely goodness and faithful love will follow me all the days of, all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I shall live. So take note of this. Goodness, faithful love. God's presence, God himself is a basis for our hope. His presence, he himself is an even deeper basis for hope. In this verse, David expresses that his greatest hope is dwelling in the house of the Lord as long as he lives. For David, the presence of the Lord was symbolized and embodied in the temple in Jerusalem. In the temple was the Holy of Holies, and the priests ministered there, and God's presence was truly among his people through that temple. In ancient times, pre-temple, pre-David, pre-the kings, in ancient times, God's presence was symbolized by a tabernacle, which was kind of like a mobile temple. And the tabernacle also had a Holy of Holies, and everyone camped around the Holy of Holies, and God's presence was there in the Holy of Holies, truly among his people in the Ark of the Covenant in the cloud of his presence by day, in the pillar of fire that blazed brightly at night. People experienced God's presence through tabernacle, in the tabernacle through worship, in the temple through worship. Now, God doesn't just give us hope. We often think of hope as something God's given us apart from himself. The truth is, God is our hope. God doesn't just give us rewards and benefits God is our reward. God himself is our benefit. Uh, He himself is our very great reward. God didn't just intend to make us, you know, uh, to give us things or or to make us for things. He made us for himself. He didn't just create us for relationships with other people. He created us for a relationship with himself. And God's ultimate purpose for us is that we would live and breathe and dwell in his presence with him forever. Not just all the days of our life, but for eternity. For David, worship in the temple was a kind of dress rehearsal for eternity. When you came into the temple, you addressed yourself to the presence of God. When you were in the temple, all the things of this world would melt away. You'd forget all about them before the glory of God. And that's how it should be for us as we contemplate the presence of God. You know, uh, God no longer dwells in temples made by human hands or tabernacles. The Bible says something greater has occurred and it's an even greater basis for hope. We don't have to go to a temple to experience the presence of God. By his Holy Spirit, when we enter into that covenant of faith in Christ, God says he dwells within us by his Holy Spirit. That we, his people, we, the church, become the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the presence of God dwells not out there, but within us as believers. And the presence of God, of his spirit within us, is kind of an earnest, a 
a seal and promise, a foretaste of what God has in store for us for eternity. It's true that Jesus has gone into heaven to prepare a place or a home or a dwelling for us. And we can use our imagination to imagine what kind of place that might be and what kind of features. And But it's also true when we go to heaven that we will recognize and we will be aware of other loved ones who have passed before us. And, and maybe even our pets, who knows. But in heaven, you have to understand that the old order will give way to a new order. In heaven, there will be a kind of coronation, a wedding of the Lamb. You read the end of Revelation And what we find is that all of us will be betrothed to God himself, to Christ Jesus, our Lord, the Lamb. He will be the groom and we his bride. If you are a believer, there is a wedding in your future and it's to the Lamb of God, Christ Jesus himself. When we gather as a church worshiping, we sit at a table. We sit at a banquet table, the Lord's table, communion. And it's a prelude to a wedding banquet table when we will eat and drink with Christ at his table in heaven forever and ever in his presence. It will be a wedding banquet table and we will be at Christ's side and there's nowhere else we'll rather be. We will be his bride, his first love forever and ever. The goodness leads us into a covenanting relationship in this life with God. But the ultimate destination is the very presence of God, dwelling in the very presence of God, not just for this life, but for all eternity. Enjoying God's eternal presence forever is the most ultimate way that we can talk about love, about hope. It's the most ultimate way we can talk about hope is that we will be with God forever. And this worship's just a foretaste of that. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this verse in Psalm that ignites our imagination, that reminds us of your goodness, that leads us into this covenant relationship with you, that points us to our hope of being in your presence forever in Christ. Father, I pray that we would be responsive to hope in its depth and richness in this relationship with you. I pray that the worship that we do here would remind us that you are our reward. And you are our God. We were created for you. And we were created to enjoy you and you us. May we look to that for hope and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.